Hey, good morning. It's good seeing all of your faces this morning. So I want to reiterate a couple of things that were said earlier. Next week is Easter. Oh, man. (laughs) Who's excited about Easter? Come on. All right, we can do better than that. Who's excited to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Technically, we do that every day. Uh, But on Easter, we give special emphasis to the risen Jesus and how awesome it'll be. I can't wait next week. Come this Friday for Good Friday as we celebrate uh, how our Lord died for us. And so it'll be be great. A couple things with that. Uh, First of all, starting next Sunday, especially because, you know, more people come on Easter primarily than any other time of the year. And so we're going to have more families, more, which means more kids. And so Ellen Kruger, our kids ministry coordinator, said, we need probably 30 to 40 more people to help. And so uh, one of the things I love about Ellen is she will go, man, 30 to 40 volunteers, that's God-sized. And by the way, we probably are going to need that indefinitely almost because, uh, I don't know if you know this, but our kids' area has been renovated, it's being renovated, and it's almost done. Someone say hallelujah. Okay, that was all right. Uh, no, it's, it's exciting. It's, uh, we're going to be able to accommodate more families, more kids, open up more rooms, which means we need more volunteers. And so, like I said, Ellen said, well, you know, 30 to 40 volunteers, that's a lot. Let's just pray. Let's pray and God will provide. Let's trust him to provide. So you might be an answer to prayer if you serve next week for Easter. We would encourage you to do so during one of the services. Just give it a shot. Try it one time and, and see how it feels. Second, the first service starts at what time? 8.15. So don't come at 9, because if you come at 9, then you're going to be like, they started without me. Yes, because it started at 8.15. Uh, and we would encourage you, please, you know, our guess is that most people are going to go to the second and third service and not as many to the first service. So, so if you would, for one Sunday, come early, come to the 8.15, and we're going to rejoice and worship Jesus together. Uh, the last thing I want to say before we get started is... Uh, you may have noticed in the tables, right out here, there's a bunch of people stuffing envelopes and writing things. What in the world is going on? Well, as John just shared earlier, we have an opportunity to bless and encourage and pray for Franciscan Crown Point, St. Anthony's. And so we have committed as a church to give an encouragement prayer card with a gift card to every single employee in that hospital. There are 1,200 employees. And this is... I don't say this, it's not like, oh, look at us. It's not to our glory, it's to God's glory. And this is going to, we pray that this is going to build a relational bridge with the hospital so we can continue to encourage them and pour into them. I, obviously, you know this, last year has been, the last several months have been just so difficult. And so we want to encourage them. So that's what's going on out there. And we look forward to seeing how God's going to use that. Well, let's pray before we dig into the word right now. God, we ask that you have your way in our lives, not just this morning, but every second of every day, because you are the king. You are the king of kings, as we sing about. You are the king of our hearts. You're the king of all glory. You are the coming king who rode into Jerusalem in majesty and honor, and you are the coming king who will come riding on a white horse, having victory over sin, Satan, death, and destruction for all time. And so we look forward to your coming, and we celebrate your first coming now. God, I pray that today on Palm Sunday, of all days, 
that you would do something powerful in our midst, that you would work in minds and hearts, remove any darkness and, and, and shine the light of Jesus Christ in our hearts. And maybe there are some today who will get saved. Maybe today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time, as Scripture says. God, we would rejoice in that, and you would get all the glory. And for those of us who trust in Jesus, may you give us a word today that is powerful and transformative so that we further delight in and cling to you. All this we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a man from the government was traveling around the country, and he was taking seismological geological readings. He was going from place to place. And so he goes to middle of nowhere. He finds this ranch and he has a specific spot he has to get to. And it's in this fenced pasture, this fenced field. And so he goes to the farmer who's right there by the fence, this rancher. And he says, "Uh, sir, I'm from the government. I'm from the department of the interior and I'm taking geological readings. I need to go into that field right there and take the readings. Do you mind if I do so? The farmer with straw in his mouth goes, you're not getting in that field. He's kind of taken aback. He goes, uh, sir, I don't think you understood me. I, I'm from the government. I have the authority to do so. You're not going in that field. Well, now he's getting a little irate. He's getting perturbed. Sir, I have authority from the U.S. government. And he reaches into his coat pocket of his suit and pulls out some papers and waves them in the farmer's face and says, these papers give me authority to go wherever, whenever I want, wherever I choose, and I have to go into that field to set up my instrumentation, so you're going to let me into that field. No, I'm not. You're not going into that pasture. Oh, yeah? Watch me. And he just runs over, and he takes his bag of instrumentation and hoists it over the fence. He starts climbing over the fence, and the farmer says, again, I warn you, don't go into that pasture. Yeah, well, watch me. And he goes in there, and he gets in the middle of the field, and he's setting up his instrumentation. And as he's doing so, the farmer just watches, and all of a sudden, the ground starts to shake. The ground is shaking and swelling and rumbling. He's like, oh, my goodness, this is exactly what I need this instrumentation for. So he starts frantically trying to put it together. And as he's doing so, thinking it's an earthquake, he hears the sound of hooves. And he looks up and he sees not only hooves, but horns. And a raging bull with his head down, horns out, sprinting toward him. And he goes, ah! And he leaves his instrumentation, leaves all his stuff, and he just runs out the field and he runs around and he's headed back to the fence and he looks at the farmer and he said, please save me, help me. And the farmer looks at him and slyly says, show him your papers. <laughs> See, there's a difference between power and authority. And if one has authority but no power, their authority is useless. Their plans would be feeble because they have no ability to carry them out. Conversely, if one has power but no authority, they would be frustrated because they have the capability but no position to do so. No position to do anything, and Jesus has both the power and the authority. He has both because he's the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And so today's passage on Palm Sunday of all days, we're looking at this, the authority and power of Jesus about his true identity and what our response to him should be. So turn to Mark chapter 11. For a couple weeks, we're going to leave the book of Romans, and we're going to be in Mark chapter 11 today. As you turn there, here's the main point. Jesus, the king, has authority over all. 
I mean, he has authority over everything, and that means we can trust him with our lives, and we can trust him with our prayers. So, Mark chapter 11, you can turn there. As you're doing so, let me, give, let me set up the context of our story today. Jesus, at this point, has been doing ministry for three years, and he's not just making ripples in the society. I mean, he is causing social tidal waves. His teachings were powerful and paradigm-shifting. He wasn't just changing lives, he was changing cultures. Numerous people were healed of various physical afflictions, leprosy, blindness, deafness, physical immobility. For some, he cast out demons. He fed thousands with essentially a happy meal. He walks on water. He turns water into wine. He even raised the dead. I mean, right before the events here in Mark 11, we look at John 11, which we're going to look at next week on Easter, Jesus literally raises four-day dead Lazarus from the grave. Not something that we see a whole lot, you know, not something so commonplace. And this, above all his miracles, causes quite the stir among society. And most importantly, Jesus proclaims spiritual freedom through himself. His notoriety is sweeping the countryside. Jesus' hype is spreading like wildfire. And so, we get to verse 1, Mark 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, Well, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to, the, to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. So Jesus and his 12 disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. They had been traveling from Jericho, they are taking the traditional path of pilgrimage for the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, as they approached Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Passover was and still is today the greatest feast festival among Jewish people. And so they're going from Jericho to Jerusalem, and as they approach, they enter into these small villages, Bethany and Bethphage, these two tiny villages right outside of Jerusalem, essentially the burbs of Jerusalem. Bethany is where Jesus lays, raised Lazarus from the dead. And so Jesus tells two of his disciples, we don't know who, but two of his disciples to go into town where they will find a young donkey in the street tied up. He says, get it and bring it back. And if they ask you, tell them that the Lord needs it and, they will, and, and, and we will return it. And so everything that Jesus said would happen happens exactly as he said. Now, he could have prearranged this, but I don't think that's the case. He's Jesus. He knows everything. And so the donkey's owners comply when they find out it's for the Lord and they give permission. Probably not something that would work with someone's car, right? You see a couple people walking to the car, they're talking, they have their keys out, and you grab the keys, yoink, and you run to the car and they're like, hey, you're stealing my car. No, it's okay. It's for the Lord. Oh, it's for the Lord. Oh, okay. Probably wouldn't work, but this works here. My personal guess is that the owners of the donkey were either believers, followers of Christ, or God-fearers, God-seekers. They were seeking the Messiah. Either way, they gave permission quickly and easily when they heard who it was for, the Lord. 
Regardless, this is not theft because Jesus knew they'd give permission. Plus, you know, he owns everything. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God, God incarnate. He already owns literally everything in this universe. Everything is his. He has authority over all, remember. So, we pick up in verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, he saw it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus gets on a colt, a baby donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem. Goes down a deep descent from the Mount of Olives. Now, listen, I have been there. From the Mount of Olives, where Bethany and Bethphage would be, it's about two miles to the temple. And you can literally stand there, and you can see the Temple Mount. So as they are coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, it's about two or 3,000-foot descent, Jesus is here riding on what? What's he riding on? A donkey. A donkey. Of all things, a donkey. Not a royal chariot. Not a cavalcade of grand horses, a donkey. Years ago, uh, I had the opportunity to meet the President of the United States. I was in college, it was 2003, and I'm not a political person by any means, but listen, when you have the opportunity to meet the President of the United States, you take it. And so I had some friends and family who had tickets to an event that he was going to be at, and I I was excited, I was excited to meet the President. And it was President George W. Bush at the time. And so it was in downtown Denver. I grew up in Colorado. I went to college in Denver. And so we're, we're excited. We're getting ready. There's a mass crowd there. And here comes the grand motorcade. So you have, you know, these motorcycles. Then you have these armored vehicles. And then you have this big black limo with the U.S. flags on it, and you know that's the president. And then following him are more armored vehicles, more motorcycles, and there's police, there's uh, uh, secret service agents everywhere, dozens of them. You know, Eagle One, Fox Two, we got the eagle on the ground, I guess. I don't know really what they were saying, but something like that. And so they, they usher in, I mean, dozens of secret service agents usher in the president into the building with all this pomp and circumstance and regalia and prestige and pageantry. I mean, it was, it was impressive. And so we had the opportunity to do, to meet him, to shake his hand and do a photo op. And they're moving people through. And, and you had to go through several, like 10 different checkpoints. I mean, they patted me down at least three times. You're getting through all this stuff, going through all the, the bodyguards and the secret service agents. I mean, it was impressive and it was intimidating. We're in line for like two hours. And I'm going through in my head, what am I going to say to the president? I have a chance to say something to the president. What am I going to say? So I'm rehearsing. You know when you're really nervous and you're like in your bedroom and you look at the mirror and you start rehearsing what you're going to say? I mean, that's kind of what I was doing in my mind. I was going to say, Mr. President, my name is Jared Bryant, and it's an honor to meet you. I know you have an extremely difficult job, but I want you to know we are praying for you in the name of Jesus. I repeated that over and over in my head. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. Don't, you know, this is, this is a cool opportunity. And so I get to the front of the line, 
And they're just moving people through, and, and the Secret Service agents say, okay, you're, you're next, and they just give me the instructions, tell me what to do. And I go up, and here's President George W. Bush. And he's, he's kind of a shorter man. I'm 6'2", he's like 5'4", 5'5", I mean, he's like right here. So I look down at him, and he, he goes, hey, young man, how you, <laughs> that's a terrible impression, I'm sorry. <laughs> he goes, hey, young man, how are you doing? And I stuck out my hand, okay, say it right, say it right. And I went, hi. <laughs> and I got moved on. I'm like, no, I missed my chance. Because I was so intimidating and with all these secret service agents and the, you know, gold-plated this and all the regalia and the prestige and the power and the authority and all this, it was impressive and intimidating. And this is what you expect from the leader of the free world from the ruler or, or, or leader of our country, from the president, from princes, kings, from rulers. This is what you expect. And this, is not, this story is not the leader of the free world. This is the leader of everything. And this is the ruler of the universe. This is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so we would expect something powerful, but not so with Jesus. He comes in riding on a donkey. And he was leaving this earthly life just as he entered it. The God of the universe lowering himself to humble means. Born in a feeding trough in a stable. Riding into the city on a donkey. Dying, crucified, nailed to a wooden cross between criminals. He crossed the Sea of Galilee in a borrowed boat. He rode into this Jerusalem on a borrowed beast and he died and was buried in a borrowed tomb. His riches were never in this earthly, worldly kingdom, but in the eternal, heavenly next. And that's the point. Friends, that's the point. Jesus constantly pointed to two rival kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. And God's kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. Or maybe I should say our worldly kingdom is the upside-down kingdom. Our world, we live in the bizarro world from what God intended. In the kingdom of God, God is the authority, not us. Exaltation of the Lord is our purpose, not self-exaltation. When I am weak, then I am strong. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Humility is greatness, not powerful dominance over others. In order to save your life, you must lose it, meaning you must die to self, die to self-gratifying desires. And maybe the, the, the biggest paradox of all, the most upside down to what our world proclaims is that to be saved, you must do nothing. In the kingdom of God, it's not works that earns you righteousness. It's not works-based righteousness. You literally do nothing. You simply trust. You rest by faith in your Savior to save you. Perhaps my, man's kingdom is the upside down. And the kingdom of God is what was intended all along. And throughout his ministry, Jesus had been ushering in his kingdom, his rule, his reign, and he does so here on a donkey of all things. But we see from Matthew 21, 4 and 5, which is a parallel passage of this story, that this was primarily to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah 9, 9. So look at Zechariah on the screen. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold what? Your king is coming to you. 
Righteous and having salvation is he. Underline salvation in your text. In fact, the New American Standard says that he is just, he is righteous and endowed with salvation. Man, I like that. Jesus is endowed. He's clothed in salvation and he distributes it to whomever he wills. He is humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal, the baby of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea. Underline that. And from the river to the ends of the earth. A humble king who rides in on a donkey and yet rules the earth from sea to shining sea, from the Atlantic to the Pacific to the Indian to the Arctic Ocean, from across all oceans, his glory covers the whole earth. He rules the entire universe. He breaks the weapons of war and speaks peace to the nations. What kind of king is this? The king of glory entering in on a donkey. Oh, they wanted this latter type of king. They wanted one who comes with power and authority, but they did not understand they needed the first type of king who humbly came to save life by dying. They wanted a mighty ruler to save them from political oppression, and we are not so different today. And we saw last year so many people and groups jockeying for position and political power and status and prestige, but that's not of the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of man. That's what the kingdom of man does. And sure enough, the king who came humbly to save is the same king who will enact justice in the whole earth and who rules and reigns forever. Make no mistake, Jesus will come as a conqueror. He will return as the conquering king on a white horse. Or as Pastor Dexter says, repent and believe. You have until Jesus changes his ride. He came on a donkey, but he's coming on a stallion. So Passover is about to begin, and thousands of Jews from all over the world are flooding into Jerusalem, making this pilgrimage for this festival. And they spread coats and cloaks and leafy branches on the road like a, like a red carpet. Again, why? Well, the waving of palm branches symbolized victory over enemies, 190 years earlier, you had this family called the Maccabees, Simon Maccabeus and Jacob Maccabeus, who had a small army that led a revolt against the Greek Empire, specifically it's the Seleucid Empire. And so they, they go in and they take over Jerusalem again from the, the Greeks who conquered it, and they cleanse the temple, they cleanse it of false gods, they reclaim Jerusalem. In fact, if, uh, if you grew up Catholic, in the Catholic Bible, uh, between the Old Testament and New Testament, you have these 14 books called the Apocrypha, and in there is the first and second Maccabees, and it's a historic retelling of what this happened, this event. In fact, this is what Jewish people celebrate at Hanukkah. Hanukkah is something Jesus even celebrated. And so, as Jacob Maccabeus, 190 years before Palm Sunday, Jacob Maccabeus and Simon Maccabeus are riding into Jerusalem on a horse. The people had palm branches, palm fronds that they were waving in celebration. The palm branch became a symbol of nationalistic pride and revolution. And here you have them doing the same thing because the people thought that Jesus would bring national deliverance from Israel's political enemies, the Romans, the Roman Empire. 
that he would establish his earthly kingdom through the Jewish people right then and there. But, listen, when, when Jesus worked miracles, it was often in private settings. You know, he would heal someone, and then he would say, I don't want you to tell anyone about this right now. Well, what, what was he doing? Well, he didn't want people to, you know, surround him, crowd him, and usher him into being a political king, an earthly king, and try to forcibly crown him. And so he would tell people, don't, don't tell people about this healing quite yet. When crowds would gather around him, often he would withdraw from the crowds as the crowds would swell to spend time with the Father. Fame and notoriety were not why he came, and yet here he is going very public. This is a pronounced, intentional entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus was drawing attention to himself at just the right time. He was writing their expectations of the Messiah by initiating the events of what we now call the Holy Week from Palm Sunday to Easter. The greatest series of events in human history were about to happen, and Jesus knows that it is now time to draw attention to what he would do. So they thought that he was there to conquer earthly rulers. He was there to conquer rulers, but not earthly political rulers, but our ultimate rulers, sin, Satan, and death. So they were right in assuming Jesus was the Messiah King, but they were wrong in thinking that he would be a political ruling Messiah, a militaristic general. Nevertheless, they cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. They're actually quoting Psalm 118. So turn to Psalm 118. This is a messianic psalm to the Jewish people known as a song of victory. This is a song that they would sing when the, the is Israeli, Israelite armies would go out and then defeat their enemies and come back into Jerusalem. So verse 25 and 26, it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Save us, we pray. That's literally the Hebrew word, Hosanna. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Long live the king. That's essentially what they're proclaiming. This would have been reminiscent of King David centuries prior riding into Jerusalem on a horse from triumphant victory, coming home from battle. Hosanna, long live the king, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they had heard rumors of Jesus. They had heard of Jesus' powerful signs and wonders and miracles and of his powerful teaching. And they were ready to anoint him as king of Israel. So they say, Hosanna, Hosanna was a transliterated Hebrew word, which literally meant, save, I pray. So the connotation is, please save us now, we beg you. It was a plea for salvation to the Messiah King. They say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was a common greeting that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would give to Hebrew pilgrims as they would ride into town. They're basically saying, thank you for making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship the Lord now May you be blessed in his name. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Jesus was no pilgrim. He's the main event. He's the Passover lamb. They just didn't realize it yet. And he did come in the name of the Lord because he is the Lord. Now, did they understand this? Probably not. 
they missed out on how the Lord was among them. You know, it's interesting that they say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They are proclaiming profound kingdom theology without even realizing it. They understood the identity of the Messiah as a descendant of David, which Jesus was, but they didn't understand what the Messiah came to do. They knew they needed salvation, but they had no idea how he was bringing salvation, how he was ushering in God's kingdom by grace. Oh, do not mistake their enthusiasm for faith or for understanding of his royal divine nature. Jesus is indeed the Messiah, but to them he was veiled and unrecognized. Oh, how many of these later would go from crying out, Hosanna, to crucify him? How easy we turn on Jesus when he doesn't fit our expectations. And we have all done that. I hope you realize that because we are all sinners, because we have all committed spiritual mutiny, rebellion against God, before Jesus has entered into our life and into our hearts, we all cried, crucify him. Oh, we may have praised him. We may have said, Hosanna. Yeah, we want freedom. But then uh, immediately, because of our sin, we cried out, crucify him with the rest of the crowd. That's really what, that's a somber realization of what we celebrate on Good Friday. That although we were enemies of God, Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still enemies, what? What's it say? Christ died for us. It's Good Friday indeed. And as they were lavishing praises on him, they simultaneously missed Jesus. Their blinders were on. And this is haunting for us today because what we learn from the crowd is that it is possible to be seeking Jesus and see him ride right in front of you to serve him, to honor him with your material possessions, even letting him borrow your donkey. But if you don't understand who he is, you might miss him completely. Oh, what a shame it would be to miss Jesus because you misunderstood Jesus. Well, we know from Luke 19, 41 through 44, which again is another parallel passage in the Gospels of this story, that as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, as he's heading down the Mount of Olives, he's doing so weeping. He wept as he rode along because he knew that 40 years later, in 70 AD, the Roman Empire would come against Jerusalem, would, would lay siege to the city, would burn it to the ground. The temple that was so grand would be demolished. Not one stone would be left on top of another and so many hundreds, thousands would be killed. He knew this and he's weeping over the atrocities and horrors that were about to happen to the Jerusalem people. But it says in Luke 19, he does so because he says, you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Here was God coming to you. The king is here. The king is coming and you missed it. In Luke's account, the Pharisees rebuke Jesus for accepting all the praise. And Jesus' response is, listen, I tell you, if they are silent, then even the rocks will cry out. Even the very stones would cry out in praise and worship because creation recognizes its creator. How could we miss him? How could we not worship him? 
In Matthew 16, Jesus asks a brilliant question to his disciples. He says, hey, who do, you, who, do the, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? Well, Jesus, some people say that you're like John the Baptist or, Jer- or Jeremiah or Elijah or one of the prophets. And even today, if you were to go to anywhere in Cedar Lake to downtown, you know, the Crown Point Square or to Lowell, St. John, if you talk to anyone, any of your friends, you say, hey, who do people say that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? I mean, you hear all kinds of things. Well, Jesus was a good teacher. He was a moral person, a good man, or he was a great prophet, or he was a religious zealot who started Christianity. I, I even, I ask this question often. It's a great icebreaker question for spiritual conversations. I asked one guy, and he's like, he was an alien man. I'm telling you. I'm like, okay, I haven't heard that one before. People have all kinds of opinions on who Jesus is, and this is what Jesus is asking his disciples. Who do people say that I am? Then he turns it around on them, and he says, who do you say that I am? C.S. Lewis called this the great trilemma. Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. He either, because he claimed to be divine, he claimed to be God in flesh, he either is a liar, knowing that he's not divine, but claiming to be divine, or he's a lunatic, claiming to be divine, thinking he is divine when he's not divine, or he is Lord, claiming to be divine because he is divine and the Lord of all lords. So it has to be one of those. And Jesus is not our genie granting our wishes. He's not a guru, just a wise moral teacher. He's not a governor. He's not a gladiator. He is the Messiah King, the Son of the living God. So it doesn't matter what people say about him. Who do you say that he is? That's the question. Jesus is the sovereign, humble, loving, powerful king Look at the screens. Jesus is the sovereign, humble, loving, powerful king who would stop at nothing to set his people free from their harsh rulers. That's who Jesus is. So what did Jesus do after his procession into Jerusalem? Well, the crowds disperse, and he goes with his disciples to the temple. He scopes it out, and then it's getting late, and so he goes back to Bethany where he's staying. Seems pretty anticlimactic, What are you up to, Jesus? Well, he's checking out his father's house. He's scoping things out. This was his intention all along. His intended destination was his father's house through this whole journey. So he's well-received into the city, but not so well-received into the temple. They're not lavishing him with praises or recognizing his divine authority and majesty. And this leads to the vital scene. So look down. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. In Mark 11, In verses 15 through 18, Jesus enters in the next day and he goes to the temple, but not on a reconnaissance mission as before. He he, he observes the state of things the previous day and he sees that the court of the Gentiles, it's the word ethnos in the Greek, which means people groups, is where we get our word ethnicity. The court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles, the only area where foreigners were allowed in the entire temple complex had become a virtual stock market for animal dealers and money changers. Tables were set up to enable pilgrims to exchange their respective currencies for coins for the annual temple tax. And they're selling uh, uh, pigeons and lambs and oil for the various sacrifices. They were not there, these money changers and animal dealers, to worship God. They were there to worship Almighty Dollar. They were corrupting this place of worship. And so Jesus starts flipping over tables and chairs and forcing people out who were only there to make a profit. 
He's reclaiming the purpose of God's temple. This was a predetermined course of action. Jesus is not flying off the handle. He's upset because the temple was to be, according to Isaiah 56, 7, a house of prayer for all nations. All peoples have a right to seek the Lord. Oh, the Jewish people may have wanted a Messiah who would clean house, who would cleanse the temple of those dirty Gentiles, that foreigner filth, but Jesus does not clear the temple of Gentiles. He clears the temple for Gentiles because, again, it's a house of prayer for all nations, all peoples. Oh, Jesus hated the notion of false religion and false worship. He wanted people to seek the truth, earnestly seek him When the temple was polluted from being a place of prayer to being a place of profit, he was rightfully angry. He is the Messiah King who cannot tolerate sinful corruption. You know, if I go to your house and I just start rearranging the furniture, I I think this is, I like this over here and this should be over there. You know, the, what is it called, feng shui? Is that right? I don't know, it doesn't matter. Anyway, you're you're, trying to get your living room and I just start shifting everything around. You're going to be like, what are you doing Because it's not my house. I don't have a right to do that. Your house, your rules. My house, my rules. And Jesus is referring to the Lord's temple as his house. My house shall be a house of prayer. Jesus was zealous for God's house to be a house of prayer. Interestingly, in the New Testament, the body of Christ is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. So if you are a follower of Christ, and I don't presume to believe that everybody in here trusts in Jesus for salvation, Just because you attend church, that doesn't make you a Christian, doesn't make you saved. But if you have trusted in Jesus for salvation, you are part of the church, the collective people of God. We are the house of God. We are now his temple. And being God's temple, we should be a people of prayer. Amen? That is our calling. And again, this all shows his royal nature and messianic authority. So he drives the people out, cleanses the temple. And for those who are remaining Jesus teaches those people. And these are not the ravings of a mad lunatic. In fact, it says the whole crowd listened and was astonished at his teaching. Not everyone, though. Not everyone was thrilled with what just transpired. The Jewish leaders were furious, and they began plotting how to kill him. Jesus' actions and authority were an affront to their authority. His authority superseded theirs. Would they submit to his authority as the Messiah? Or would they seek to establish their own self-exalting authority? And this is the question we must all ask ourselves. Will we submit to the authority of Christ or try to establish our own false authority? Folks, Jesus is the king who has authority over all. So we can trust him with our lives and with our prayers. This week, Bethel Cedar Lake, we are going to pray and fast as a church leading up to Easter. You know, much like Lent, some of your traditions that you may have come from celebrated Lent, which is a way to approach the Holy Week with intentionality. We want to do the same thing. We want to prepare our hearts for the powerful truths of Easter. So we're going to fast together as a church. What is fasting? Well, fasting is foregoing what you need or what you perceive you need for the only one you truly need. So it's a way to focus your prayers, and it's commanded in Scripture Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. So practically speaking, however you want to do it, if you want to fast one meal this week, if you want to fast a meal a day, a 24-hour period, a 48-hour period, if you are unable to fast from food for medical reasons, maybe you have diabetes or hypoglycemia, whatever, 
Find something else to fast from, maybe something that's distracting, maybe something that consumes your time, social media, TV, whatever the case may be. It's less about what you give up and more about who you are giving up them for, namely to seek his face in focused, undistracted prayer for a particular purpose. And here's our purpose, church. Here is what we are going to fast over. We are praying for revival in our church. Right? We're praying for revival in our church. Oh, God, revive our hearts. And we're praying for spiritual awakening in our region. Oh, God, transform hearts. Make alive dead hearts. Save souls. Revival and spiritual awakening, this is what we are praying for. Now, words of caution, do not do this for self-righteous reasons. Don't do it because you want to impress God or you want to twist his arm. Like, okay, God, if I fast, you have to do this for me. Don't, don't do this to earn God's favor. It's already earned for us by Jesus. Don't do it to feel good about yourself. Don't do it to look good in front of others. Jesus literally warns against that in Matthew 6, against self-righteous fasting to, to look good in front of others, to get their glory for yourself, to seek their favor. In Isaiah 58, it warns against these things, and it says that you need to check your heart. You need to do self-examination. So use this time to examine your own heart, confess sins to the Lord, repent. And it says don't just fast in Isaiah 58. It says don't just forego food in this ritualistic manner, but seek to bless others. Bless others, serve others, serve the poor, the needy, the oppressed, the disenfranchised, the marginalized. This is what we should do leading up to Easter this week as we pray and fast. Later today, I'm gonna email you a fasting guide and I'm going to post it on our Bethel Cedar Lake Facebook page. So if you're not on that page, if you're on Facebook, I urge you to get on that. It's just look up Bethel CL. And I'm going to be posting this guide that will give you instructions on how to fast and what practical advice, what to do. And then it'll have devotionals for morning and evening every day this week. And I encourage you to please partake of that. And then next week, here's what I want you to do. I want you to email me, jbryan at bethelweb.org, and just report back what God did. I'm not going to use your name because, again, we don't want our right hand to let know what our left hand is doing. It'll be anonymous, but we want to celebrate how the Lord is answering prayers and what God is doing. So what do you say, what do you say church? Church family, is this something that we want to do? Well, it doesn't matter. This is something we should do. <laughs> we're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to seek the Lord because, again, it's good to just abide in Christ and delight in him and just be with him, seeking his presence.